Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No, you said this one. Oh, well then why are you holding the mic and doing this? <laughs> giving me bedroom eyes while you're holding the mic. It's like, well, get going, Hannah. Start serenading me. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. Today, we're bringing you the third episode of our season on fans and fandoms in which we're going to talk about the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo, uh, at which I presented a panel on Harry Potter and the Rise of Fascism, (gasps) which the organizers very gently asked me if I could please uh, retitle so that I wouldn't have a bunch of white nationalist trolls in the audience. Now that's not unprecedented, because wasn't the Calgary Expo protested last year or the year before? Yeah, uh, there was a dis- there was a planned disruption, and there was um, there was a table. There was a group that was tabling, and I think they were called the like something about badgers or something. Like it wasn't like honey badgers, and it wasn't Hufflepuffs, but it was some other like like bitches and badgers or something. Really, just like it was like a group of people who were like anti feminist and believe in free speech, and you know those the kinds of people who think that free speech means saying hateful things to other people so yeah so they had actually i believe disrupted a talk but i can't remember the talk was it was a feminist talk but i don't unfortunately remember the details but it was uh it was a big enough deal that i think it was it was being covered by the mary sue in in somewhat real time so it was definitely yeah so it was not a a poorly intentioned request and i and i did i i hate confrontation i know that i give off the uh the air that i love to make people angry and i do but from in a very passive aggressive way i like to be far away <laughs> don't look at me <laughs> uh so yeah so i changed i retitled my talk to uh, harry potter and social justice oh <laughs> which is just such a sweet and so it's cute it was very cute anyway it was great it was great. It was a it was a packed room. There are lots of very enthusiastic people about uh, as soon as I referred to the election of Donald Trump and the rise in hate crimes, a big group of people got up and left the room. So like some people weren't into it, but the people who stayed were mostly pretty into it. That was great. Nice. Is the Q&A recorded on this? OK. All right. So everybody will get to hear the really special question about uh, hate crimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What we did, and you'll hear this, um, maybe I'll edit it out of the recording because it's not very interesting. But what we did uh, was I made it clear that if you did not want your question recorded, all you had to say when you got to the to the microphone is just to say um, no broadcast. So it'll be on the podcast for everyone to hear. 
Can't wait. So was this uh, just a talk you gave or was it a panel? Were there, were there multiple discussants? It was just a talk that I gave, although what the... Don't mean ju- just as in, like, that's not oh, as exciting, yeah, but, like, one person versus multiple people. Yeah, no, like, a, it's a good, it's a good clarify, clarifying question. For, for whatever reason, the, the expo organizers refer to all of the talks as panels, and so everybody who does a talk is a panelist, um, even if you were the only person on your panel. Uh, so that's funny. Initially, um, I had applied. I'm never sure if people are going to take the fact that I require tech support seriously and child minding seriously. And so what I did is I applied uh, for both me and Trevor. And if Elliot had been sleeping, Elliot is the name of our child if you're a first time listener. <laughs> AKA. AKA the baby hippogriff. It's so cute. He's called the baby hippogriff because he was born with claws like talons. Um, uh, yeah. So we we had we had for a while like talked about the possibility that if Elliot had been sleeping, that Trevor could maybe like participate in the panel with me. But it ended up just not being. It just wasn't a feasible option. We would have had to like have a contingency plan in case he wasn't sleeping. So so anyway, so I applied as both of us both of us to be panelists so that um Trevor would be able to provide tech support and child minding uh while I did the panel on my own. So I'm not sure if that's unethical. What I really think is unethical is not having childcare at these kinds of events. The end. How did I get here? I don't know. Uh, there is absolutely nothing unethical about asking for childcare or manipulating a system such that it's provided to you. And I want to give a shout out to the lovely humans at Tufts University who oh, were yeah. so wonderful and responsive when Marcel communicated to them that uh, bringing her partner to provide childcare was a necessity for her to be able to participate in events. Keep this in mind, organizers, that when you do not provide childcare, a lot of the humans who are primary caregivers for children who are still in this current moment by vast majority women end up not being able to participate. Mm-hmm. So if you want to meaningfully change the diversity of your organization, if you if women are underrepresented, maybe childcare. Yeah. And you know, you know what? Like, even for people who are co-parenting with another person and both people do exactly 50% of the work, for that one person to leave and the other person to then take on 100% of the work, for so many people is just completely unfeasible. Even in a like perfect ideal scenario where two people are just absolutely straight down the middle, co-parenting, and it is blissful and perfect, as soon as you take one of those co-parents away for a week... Or like three days or whatever, all of a sudden it gets really, really, really complicated. So Tufts, you did a really good job. Thank you. Okay, so I am curious to know um, why you like presenting at Fan Expos. Why this is maybe your third time, I think, presenting at a Fan Expo, Um, right? Edmonton once and Calgary twice. Fourth, your fourth time presenting at an expo. So tell me why you like why you like talking at expos. As as many academics can attest, presenting at conferences is often a real blow to your self esteem yeah. because you will present to a room that has anywhere from zero to seven people in the audience. 
I know, right? It's such a bummer. I presented a really good paper at a conference in Toronto that had four people in the audience. One of those people was the radiant and perfect Lucia Lorenzi. And so it was 100% worth it. I would just give a paper directly to her anytime. But it still is always a bummer. Yeah. Whereas often if you're presenting at a comic expo about something that people really care that there's a a vibrant fandom for like Harry Potter, you can fill a room and there are people who they don't know who you are. They don't know. They've never heard of your weird feminism podcast, but they will come because you're going to talk about Harry Potter and they want to hear what you have to say about Harry Potter. And maybe they want to ask you questions about Harry Potter at the end. So, yeah, so I find presenting at expos really fun. Um, Also, unlike conferences, when you are a panelist at an expo, you get free entry into the event. Whereas if you are a panelist at at an academic conference, you have to pay for the pleasure of showing up to give your paper to a room full of two or three people. I should say I paid almost $400 for the conference where I presented to four people. (laughs) <laughs> Woo! yeah yeah so it's um it's a really so it's a really refreshing and exciting uh alternative i think um and i think too i want to word this in a way that doesn't make me sound like a really like arrogant d-bag <laughs> um but i think that sometimes as as academics working with like popular culture or um, things that have been taken up as popular culture that weren't necessarily written for popular consumption, but maybe like, I don't know, I can't think of an example of what that might be. But anyway, um, I think that sometimes it is possible to become a person who only looks at something academically and doesn't really interact with um, non-academics who consume that same thing. And I and I think that that can be really shitty, right? Like you can you can really lose sight of you can let me rephrase. I love theory. I think theory is so eye opening and helps me to see the world in new and exciting and more um, challenging and complicated ways. Theory has been really good for me um, in terms of broadening my mind. But as somebody who gets really into theory, I also think it's possible to like forget that a lot of people consume things without thinking about the ways in which they consume them in a theoretical way. Um, And that's okay. It's not a bad thing. Uh, And that those ways of consuming media in a non-theoretical lens are are often very insightful and eye-opening. And theory isn't like... Theory isn't isn't reality. <laughs> it's a way of understanding reality for sure, but like theory isn't the same thing as just like a, an objective truth. Um, and the same with like if you really just like something because it makes you feel good, or it makes you feel good about yourself, or it makes it feel it makes you like feel not alone. <laughs> like that's also that's great. It's also not an objective truth. <laughs> Anyway, I think that they're just like really valuable and uh, and important ways to to look at texts that that thrill us and that interest us um, without maybe getting too lost in the one in the one world. Yeah. yeah. Right. Can I tell you a little story about a different conference that I was at? Yeah. 
was at a book history conference recently, and uh, I was in a panel, another very poorly attended panel about um, the history of comic book pub- publishing. It was so poorly attended. It was such a bummer because it was just two papers, but both the papers were amazing. Um, but because it was a full length panel and there were just two papers, we had a lot of time for the Q and A. And um, a particular senior professor from your home institute uh, decided to use the um, extra long Q and A session to ask a question that this scholar really, really loves to ask which is uh if the meaning of the text lies in the reader and not the text how come you haven't actually talked about reader responses you know who i'm talking about it's the only question this person ever asks um it's a it's a fair question it's a fair question right and it is this question of like what are we as academics doing you know offering these deeply theoretical conversations about texts and not actually like thinking about how people read them and what they mean to the communities who read them and use them. And then he proceeded by saying, um, uh, or proceeded to say, uh, you know, since we have all this extra time and you were talking about, you know, comic books in the 1950s, I'm going to do you a favor and offer you a reader's report. I read these comics when I was a child. Here's what I thought of them. And then (laughs) spent like 10 minutes. It was anyway it was a textbook example of good intentions gone awry like i see what you are trying to do here but you are also like dominating the q a session for two young women scholars good intentions articulated through the body of a very powerful white man who fails to adequately understand the degree of power that he holds because of his understanding about the way that the world works and the way that power moves through the universe. Yeah. And, you know, and then at the end he said that uh, he had looked online for any repositories of people's actual responses and thoughts on comic books and had been shocked to find nothing. And I was like, what are you? I turned to him and I said, are you kidding me? 90% of Twitter is white men's opinions about comic books. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, he meant historically. Uh, (laughs) Um, uh, But I do think the point holds that when you study something in isolation from the communities who are actually using these stories, you are going to miss a huge part of what it means. And you can't talk about Harry Potter and not talk to Harry Potter fans. Yeah. Like, otherwise, your reading of it is purely theoretical, right? Theoretical in both senses, like, informed by theory, but also, like, <laughs> like hypothetical. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe this is the way somebody could read it. But, like, why don't we just talk about how people actually read things and what books actually mean to people mm-hmm. in their lives? Yeah. So, do you find... Or did you find at this particular expo that some of the responses and questions were surprising or challenging or caught you off guard or came at things from angles you wouldn't have predicted? My answer is complicated because one of the things that I wish is that I had curated the Q&A a bit more um, because I had really hoped 
of the Q&A that it would provide for the room an opportunity for them to share with me. So, okay, let me, so, so you will hear this in the podcast, but uh, what we, what I do is I talk about the lessons that we can learn about the rise of fascism from the Harry Potter world. And then I give, I close out with some examples, some like lessons that we can take uh, about how to resist it. Um, and I, I name like a handful of characters and the things that they do well. Um, and then I invite the audience to either ask a question or to share with me a lesson that they learned about um, about resistance and about like social justice and that kind of thing from the Harry Potter world. And I, I wish that I had started the, the panel by saying, I at the end would like to hear from you about, um, like I wish I'd given them more time to think about it because I know sometimes when you get presented with the opportunity to ask a question, you're like, who's even in Harry Potter? I've never read the books, even though I've read them all eight times. Like what even happens in them? So it didn't work out the way that I had hoped. Um, so that's sort of the, the complicated answer. Yeah. And another another way to answer your question is just to say yes, for sure. Like one. Well, I was also really I was also surprised by my own inability to answer some questions. Like one person asked this really legit this really legit question about any examples in real life of societies that have come back from like totalitarianism. Um, And I was like, well, we, surely there must be some, but I can't think of any. Like, I didn't think about Germany. Like, Germany didn't come to mind. The fact that Germany is not currently a totalitarian dictatorship with concentration camps didn't come to mind. Listen, that as you as you just said yourself about asking people questions, sometimes, like, I will never forget my first ever academic job interview when they said, what do you think the most five most important works of Canadian literature are. And I was like, pretty sure I've never read a book ever, any books. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no, I don't, but what is, nope. What is Canadian? What is, who, who are you? Who am I? Why are you asking me these questions? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like people, as we both, as we know from doing this podcast, fans have the most incredible, insightful interpretations of these texts and are able to like open up all kinds of all kinds of possibilities um, in our own understandings of how they how they produce meaning. Um, and so the Q and A is such a fantastic opportunity to get there if you if you do it right. Fantastic. Fantastic! Yeah, <laughs> some sweet mic effects going on there. Um, did you do anything else while you were at the expo? Did you see anything or or any other panels or any particularly exciting tables? I didn't get to see any. I didn't. I didn't give any famous scoundrels any money at this one. Whereas at at all of the previous at all of the previous cons that I've gone to, I've just been like, that person is here, take all my money. The best one being when Carrie Fisher gave me a hug. Uh, sorry, I didn't give her money to give me a hug. I gave her money to take a picture with her. And the way that she was taking her pictures with people was you would walk in and she would say, thank you. 
because she was such an incredible human that she thanked you for wanting a picture with her. And then she would wrap her arms around you and you would get a picture of Carrie Fisher giving you a hug. And it was the best. Uh, Also, her dog, Gary Fisher, was also there. And so he's also in the picture. It was a beautiful moment. Anyway, uh, there were no people at this one who I wanted to take all my money. Um, And I was also super exhausted from a very stressful month. Uh, So that that whole day is a real blur. And I can't remember anything. I know that I got some fries. Great job. Um, Okay, I have a larger question for you. This is a question that I've been thinking about a lot, and it is on the topic of fandoms and expos and um, this sort of business of trying to be a publicly engaged intellectual. Um, And uh, I've been thinking a lot about how, um, about a tweet that I saw one day, I can't remember who it was from, but it was definitely from an academic who said, you know, I'm getting sick of all of this. Um, you know, these expectations that academics also be publicly oriented. Um, we already have people whose job is to communicate complex ideas to publics. Those people are journalists. If you want your task to be um, communicating with people, like be a journalist, be a writer, an academic is a different thing. Um And I'm interested in your thoughts about the idea of being like a public facing academic and what like I share with you the like the excitement and the fun and the satisfaction of doing work in public and of being meaningfully engaged with publics. Why do you think it's important for academics to be for academics in particular rather than journalists, rather than um, commentators and you know, online writers to be engaging in these ways? What a great question. Um, I think maybe that person is somewhat correct in that these are different jobs. They are different responsibilities and they have different purposes. Like academics don't necessarily shape policy, whereas journalists might inspire a change in policy by rousing the masses so to speak right so like there's less of a there's less of an of an obvious there's still a connection but less of an obvious connection between say the things that an academic does uh and the way that that impacts the world than the things that a that a journalist does but um we also live in a world now where, like, uh, news media is for profit. And so we can't necessarily rely on journalists to do all of the work because they're also responsible to editors and the editors are responsible to the owners of the of the, the news media. So so it's not like it's not like either of them are perfect spheres. Um, my my instinct is to say that um, while it is perfectly acceptable for academics to have zero interest in this place that we refer to as IRL, they don't. You also don't have to have zero interest in in the real world, right? Like, like just because 
some people want to be engaged with the public and because some people see the value of being engaged in the public doesn't mean that every single academic needs must be engaged with the public and if you are the kind of like acerbic personality who can't stand the public you probably shouldn't be like like don't be but also maybe then get off twitter like like what are you doing on twitter being an academic on twitter like wearing your academic hat on twitter if you don't want to engage in public discourse Mm -hmm. like you need to look inside yourself as my friend richard my friend and office mate richard says because at this point i can't help you Like the problem that you're identifying is a problem with you, not a problem with what's happening around you. Like, like people want academics to be engaged in the public because they are tired of being talked down to by academics who refuse to engage in the public yet, yet feel entitled to make claims about this so-called or nefarious public. Um, so yeah, if you want, if you if you don't if you don't want to, don't. But then don't, don't say you don't want to, and then do, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, come on. Um, so for me, I'm very extroverted, and I like being in public, and I like engaging with 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 people in public, and I like learning from. It's actually hard to learn from academics they they speak in a way that is very lengthy and complex and sometimes tweets are a lot easier to learn from tweets really get to the point of the thing you know um yeah so I do I yeah yeah I I think it's important for academics to be involved in public discourse and to be involved or not maybe not to be involved in but to be like learning from public discourse uh but I don't think that you have to be um and I also don't think that we can just like rely on journalists to take care of all of the public discourse for us because like someone then explained Margaret Wenty and Jonathan Kay and uh, Barbara Kay and Christy Blatchford and uh, Christina. What's Christina's? Uh, no, not Christina. I don't know. I wanted to say Christina Rossetti, but that's a poet. <laughs> God damn. Um, I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I have been finding myself being like, God, did I just want to be a journalist? Like, I'm so excited about talking to people in public via timely mechanisms. But but then you look at, like, the way in which the Canadian media has been behaving recently. And it's like, well, there are no perfect systems. So I guess we're all just trying to take the systems and structures that we work within and do our best job to to use what skill sets we have to to do the most good work we can within those systems you you definitely did not want to be a journalist you want to be a public intellectual because you want to think about things and you want to think about their complexities and you want to talk about things and their complexities in ways that like invite conversation and other people's ideas and like disagreement but productive disagreement like you didn't want to be a journalist (laughs) Also, it would be so cool if journalists could spend more time doing, like, investigative journalism and uncovering bullshit and less time being like, um, Twitter. 
You know, like that would be really cool. I know that like maybe the Canadian news consuming public just wants more reality TV, but also it would be super cool if like you could just stop being like, mm, I don't know, like residential schools, were they so bad? No. Uh, and spend more time being like, hey, what's going on with like public policy and why hasn't Justin Trudeau like actually done anything that he said he was going to do? for missing and murdered indigenous women like maybe there's some kind of like actual actual like line of corruption that's stopping him from doing a thing i think we can all agree that the real thing to be concerned about is the silencing of free speech via the twitter mob i mean have you seen that twitter mob marcel you're right hannah you're right i forgot the free speech think of the free speech What is democracy without free speech? That is a thing that I say in this in this episode. I do talk about the necessity of a like free and unfettered media. (laughs) I don't call it free speech. I don't think I do. Who knows? We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I don't want to ask you any any particular questions. I just want to listen and hear your exciting talk. So maybe it's time for us to uh, segue in and uh, eavesdrop. Hey, listeners, let's go now. (laughs) And listen in on Marcel's exciting talk. Hi, you guys are great. (laughs) Yay, they're clapping for you, Elliot. Uh, So before I begin, I want to acknowledge that we are gathered on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot and the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. So thank you everyone again so much for being here today. It's you're an incredible crowd. The I'm I'm moved not to tears because I don't have feelings anymore now that I have a baby. Um, But I'm I am moved in the way that makes me feel very nervous when I speak to a room this this full of people. So as I said, my name is Marcel Cosman, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm accompanied by our ever-helpful tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser, and uh, our very disruptive and very cute baby, Elliot Fox. Uh, So before I begin, I want to acknowledge that uh, these ideas are borrowed from conversations that I've had with my co-host, co-creator, co-producer, and coven mate, Hannah McGregor, who is not able to be with us today. Um, And also, this talk will be recorded and broadcast as an episode of Which Please, uh, which you can find on your uh, podcatcher of choice, whatever brings podcast magic to your ears. Today I'm here to talk about Harry Potter and social justice. Specifically, I want to talk about what the Harry Potter series can teach us about the rise in hate crimes since Donald Trump became president of the United States. So this particular form of hatred that's on the rise is popularly known as white nationalism. This is a movement that seeks to prioritize the well-being of white people in Canada and the U.S. and in other places too, Uh, by making these countries unsafe for people of color, especially indigenous peoples and black folk. There are other aspects to the movement, but this hatred for non-white people is what I'm going to focus on today. Okay. So, 
Uh, I just want to be clear that, that uh, what we call white nationalism isn't actually new, uh, and that the movement's current resurgence in Canada and the U.S. really urges us to educate ourselves, our friends, our family, our children, our peers, uh, about the logical end of a society that's based on hatred, um, and that is fascism. So the Harry Potter series teaches us incredibly valuable lessons about recognizing fascism and about the various ways of being an ally uh, and about the ways to fight back. Uh, this series is a useful go-to when trying to understand the slippery road to this kind of society based on hatred uh, and what to do when you find yourself on that path. The Harry Potter series has a lot of useful lessons, uh, although not all of them are quite as well put together as the lessons that it teaches about fascism. So many people, for example, uh, have talked about how the muggle magic relations in the series works as an allegory for uh, real-world race relations. Um, and in some ways, this is, this is definitely a, a good way to read it, but what we do when we think about the series in those terms is we forget that the magic of the series is that it's supposed to take place in our world, but in a kind of secret pocket. And in our world, racism exists. So if muggle magic relations are supposed to be an allegory for racism, where's, where's racism? So we have to figure out a way to, to think through those things. Another really good example is the idea of werewolfism as a metaphor for HIV. So this is something that J.K. Rowling has talked about. Um, so it is actually considered canon uh, that uh, Remus Lupin's werewolfism is supposed to be a metaphor for HIV. But again, HIV exists in our world, and if the Harry Potter series takes place in a secret corner of our world, then there are people who are living with HIV in that world who aren't werewolves. So again, these are things that we have to sort of try to figure out a way to, uh, to think through. Hi, honey. Yeah, you're so cute. Okay. So, so yeah, so the Harry Potter series, as a... As a uh, as a book of lessons, it has its flaws, but in contrast to those less well-thought-out allegories, the Harry Potter series does a really good job of allegorizing fascism because at the core, the series is about the rise of a fascist dictator. Uh, so this is a tweet that J.K. Rowling put out in response to somebody who was really mad about her... Um, uh, I'm actually not sure what, I can't remember what the origin of that person's anger was, but she didn't like uh, J.K. Rowling's position on probably, probably racism, who knows. Anyway, okay, so today I'm going to organize the talk around four points. One, what fascism looks like. Two, how it makes use of existing systems of power. So, for example, democracy and the media. Uh, Three, how to be an ally. And four, most importantly, how to fight back. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines fascism as, and I quote, a political philosophy, movement, or regime, dot, 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 that exalts nation and often race above the individual and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. I like the definition for kids better. It's a political system headed by a dictator in which the government controls business and labor and opposition is not permitted. Really gets to the heart of things. So in either case, whichever definition we're using, 
uh, we can most clearly see uh, examples of fascism at work in the Harry Potter series in the last book, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So, spoiler, following Voldemort's ministry coup... um, Diagon Alley turns into a virtual wasteland. So here I've got a slide. On the one side, we see the the bustling and exciting uh, Diagon Alley under fudge. And then next to it, we have um, the sort of emptied out streets after uh, after the ministry has fallen. So what we see, it's a virtual wasteland of boarded up shops. It's papered over with wanted posters for political resistors. Uh, They're referred to as undesirables. Shop owners who are suspected of opposing Voldemort are disappeared, and others are kidnapped and forced to work in his service, like, uh, like Ollivander and um, the goblin Griphook from, from uh, Gringotts. Uh, so the education system, too, uh, is also made uh, to participate in Voldemort's fascist rule. So attending Hogwarts in this book becomes mandatory, not actually despite the violence that the children are at risk of experiencing when they're there, but in fact to make that violence possible. Um, So we learn that at Hogwarts, uh, children's blood status is recorded and made note of, half-blood students are segregated from pure-blood students, and the children are, in essence, being held hostage to make sure that their parents behave the right way and don't don't get too resisty. Uh, And so then the third thing I want to show you is the way that the media uh, in this book also functions as a kind of mouthpiece for Voldemort's government. So um, what ends up happening is that there's there's no critical distinction between uh, the ministry pamphlets, for example, which here you see uh, encouraging people to enact forms of violence um, against people whose blood status is questionable, um, and the, uh, the Wizarding World's only English-language newspaper, um, The Daily Prophet. So both of these things, what they do is they just present ministry-approved information without any criticism whatsoever. I'm just going to take a sip. So in our world, conversations about the media, and you probably heard the terms fake news, alternative facts, those things are in pretty heavy circulation these days. And the criticisms of the media coming from the White House and its supporters are particularly resistant to the media's criticisms of the president and the president's administration. But it is always the responsibility of the media to criticize uh, the government. That's the role of the media. That's the reason why freedom of the press is a thing. So no matter what kind of government you have, it's always the responsibility of the media to be questioning and challenging the decisions that the government makes. So um, when people suggest that, you know, there are two sides to every story and the media is only focusing on one side... Well, this is also really misleading because very few issues ever have two sides. Most issues have dozens of sides. And if the media is doing its job, then it will present the government side with a, we'll say, fist-sized grain of salt um, and instead focus on the many other sides that are not being represented by the government's actions. So the Merriam-Webster definitions of fascism don't really specify the ways that certain people are more vulnerable to violence under fascism than other people. 
But this is something that we see depicted relatively well in the Harry Potter series, too. So the Death Eaters' hatred of difference targets many different groups. Uh, muggles, muggleborns, non-human magical creatures like goblins and house elves and centaurs. Um, and it targets anyone who wants to make the wizarding world a safer place for those people or those creatures who are being targeted, whether they're human or non-human. Uh, and this is because the Death Eaters believe in the concept of blood purity. Uh, they believe that some blood is dirty, and, and the only way to keep your blood clean is, uh, is through violent segregation, so that you never mix between people. As early as the Goblet of Fire, readers are shown how Death Eaters use violence in specifically gendered and raced ways. Uh, the example that sprang to mind when I was preparing this talk uh, was from the Quidditch World Cup. We see the Muggle family who owns the camping ground. They're being levitated by Death Eaters as a way of tormenting and teasing. And uh, I mean, teasing is, a, is not, a, not, a, not, a, not an appropriate word for what it is that they're doing. Um, and it's actually Mrs. Roberts, uh, the mother, who is flipped upside down so that her nightgown falls away um, and her body is exposed in this really specific way. Um, and shortly thereafter, Draco Malfoy, when he's harassing Hermione, he says, do you want to be showing your knickers midair? Um, so these are, two really, these are two related examples, but out of many. It's not a coincidence that the majority of violence is targeted at women in the books. Uh, the tormenting and public humiliation of Mrs. Roberts, the kidnapping and murder of the ministry employee, Bertha Jorkins, head of magical law enforcement, Amelia Bones, uh, the kidnapping, torture, and murder of Hogwarts professor Charity Burbage, the sacrifice of uh, Myrtle Warren, who we know of as Moaning Myrtle, and then the attempted sacrifice of Ginny Weasley, the, the list goes on. Um, Voldemort's particular hatred of women doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, the way that it works in the series is it's part of a broad spectrum of gender-based violence, and these, uh, this violence intersects with fascism, or sorry, it intersects with the forms of fascism uh, that cash in on the pre-existing vulnerability of women in a patriarchal society. So, You'll remember I talked a little bit earlier about how Harry Potter isn't a great allegory for racism, uh, and this is uh, another good example of where we can see uh, that where we can see that weakness up close. Uh, there are a few instances where racialized characters are the targets of violence um, in the series. So when Dean Thomas, for example, a black character, when he's on the run from the Death Eaters, uh, that one comes to mind. But overall, one of the, one of the weaknesses of the Harry Potter series um, is it tends to use muggles and muggle-borns and non-human non magical creatures uh, as uh, stand-ins for race. Um, and what that does is it imagines that racism as a thing doesn't exist. So it is with some reluctance that I, that I use these examples um, the exploitation of presumed white muggles and muggle-borns, house elves, goblins, centaurs, etc., um, as demonstrative of the ways that fascism plays on existing, existing racial hierarchies. Personally, I think that a more instructive and resistant and empowering interpretation of the series is to insist on reading characters like Hermione as black. 
Um, and so the ways in which Hermione is uniquely threatened and targeted and tortured fit in with the ways that racialized women in particular will, will bear the brunt of intersecting forms of violence under every system of power. And so what I did here is I drew from fan art. Uh, and I think that fandom is one of the best places where we see this kind of work happening. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So systems of power tend to lend themselves to abuses of power. So while the rise of fascism in the Harry Potter books is most obviously connected to Voldemort's return, I think it's really important to recognize that the scaffolding for the Dark Lord's fascist rule was already in place before he climbed out of the, the cauldron in Goblet of Fire. Again, spoiler. If we pay close attention to the series, we can actually see that the Ministry of Magic under Cornelius Fudge is not altogether different from the Ministry of Magic under Voldemort. It's less extreme, but it's not that different. So let's start with the rule of law. Uh, you may remember, there's no coherent justice system under Fudge. This is apparent from the Chamber of Secrets all the way through the Goblet of Fire, uh, but it really comes to light during Harry's trial uh, in the Order of the Phoenix. So the absurdities of Harry's trial aren't any kind of um, aberration or, uh, what's another word for aberration? Um, divergence from the way that the system is supposed to work. Uh, so when we find ourselves outraged on Harry's behalf that he's held on trial for casting a Patronus in front of his cousin to save their lives during a Dementor attack, and that Harry is faced with expulsion from Hogwarts because the Ministry refuses to believe that there were Dementors in Little Whinging, which necessitated the casting of the Patronus in the first place, and that Harry doesn't have legal counsel and that Fudge's interrogation is deliberately phrased to ensure that Harry can only make himself sound guilty. We have to remember that this is typical of the wizarding penal system, uh, that this is the same system that incarcerated Rubius Hagrid and Sirius Black for crimes that they didn't commit. And it's the same system that uses torture to keep all of its prisoners compliant. This system, which fails Harry, is already itself deeply unjust. So the mass breakout from Azkaban that takes place later on in Order of the Phoenix, spoiler, isn't a rupture in the ministry's penal system. It just, it just signals a shift in who controls it. So the little whinging Dementor attack really should be signaling to Fudge that his position as minister has come under threat. And in a sense, it does... But rather than facing the real threat of a racist uprising and acting to protect the wizarding, the wizarding community as a whole, uh, Fudge spends his remaining days in office trying to secure his personal position as minister. 
So he believes that the threat to his power comes from Dumbledore rather than wizards who believe in blood purity. So Fudge installs Dolores Umbridge at Hogwarts as the official arm and eye of the ministry. And then further, Fudge makes use of the Daily Prophet to scapegoat and discredit Harry so that no one will believe him when he says that Voldemort has returned. But what I think is even more sinister is that in discrediting Harry's story about Voldemort's return, Fudge's manipulation of the media actually, uh, sorry, Fudge's manipulation of the media and the education system actually denies the existence of a movement to enshrine blood purity into wizarding law. So, so most of us, unless I've spoiled it for you, all know what happens. Uh, Fudge will say poops his pants about Dumbledore, and Voldemort raises a literal army and then two books later takes over the ministry. Um, but the books make very clear that this army is really easily raised. It's true, Voldemort uses intimidation and violence to get what he wants, but we can't deny the vast number of people who willingly choose to follow him because doing so... Uh, it provides them with privileges. So uh, Lupin, for example, tells us that the werewolves join Voldemort because Voldemort promises them more freedoms than they have under Fudge. Uh, And then the same is true for Dementors. So the point of this is that the scaffolding of oppression, the way that it functions in a kind of hierarchy, is relatively unchanged between Fudge and Voldemort, but who's who is in what place in the hierarchy is what moves around. So under Voldemort, werewolves move up the ladder, whereas uh, pure, or sorry, Muggleborns move down the ladder, but it's the same ladder, okay? And we can't ignore that powerful and wealthy pure-blood wizards like the Malfoys remain at the top, whether it's a totalitarian dictatorship or it's just a regular old wizarding democracy. The Weasleys, too, I think it's important to point out, are afforded tremendous liberties by the mere fact of being pureblood. Mr. Weasley's pro-muggle politics raise suspicions under Voldemort's rule, but don't forget that these same, policy, or sorry, these same politics held him back under Fudge as well. Uh, likewise, Fred and George Weasley's joke shop takes off in Diagon Alley while the rest of the corridor is virtually closed for business. Their blood status lets them get away with selling edible dark marks and using jokes about you-know-who uh, to hawk their products at a time when people who question Voldemort are actually being stolen away in the night. <clears throat> So like their father, their blood status doesn't keep them safe forever, but what I want to point out is that the Weasley family chooses to resist the politics of blood purity, and they don't have to. So, I didn't make these memes. They're real good. I didn't make them. So while it's tempting to believe that a fascist dictatorship is the result of a single charismatic tyrant or even several sociopaths who are working together and just hate people together, we have to recognize that the systems of violence on which fascism thrives are already in place in our current political structures. And so when our systems of power are designed to privilege the white and the wealthy, fascism doesn't have to do a whole heck of a lot in order to make itself at home. 
And so while I think comparisons between uh, current President Donald Trump and Lord Voldemort are interesting and not inappropriate, I actually think that allegories like the Harry Potter series help us to recognize that it's the bumbling Cornelius fudges of the world who we maybe need to be paying closer attention to. Um, so if I'm right, then the rise of white nationalism under Donald Trump is actually comparable with the Death Eater blood purity rhetoric that thrived under Cornelius Fudge. Uh, and so what I would recommend is that we take steps to act before something worse crawls out of a cauldron. So let's talk about allyship. We read the Harry Potter series almost entirely from Harry's perspective, and as a result, it feels really comfortable to take his side and to believe that if we were there, if we were Harry, for example, or if we were Harry's friends, we would make many of the same choices that they do. Uh, even if we identify with other houses, we want to believe that we would be in Dumbledore's army or the Order of the Phoenix fighting on the side of justice. And I think that that's a really good and, and beautiful instinct. This is where to start. But in practice, it's actually really scary to stand up against injustice, even when it's right in front of you, happening in your own community or your own school. And it's even harder when you yourself are not personally in danger and you don't know any of the people who are being targeted. And so that's why the first step is to learn how to be an ally and what it means to be an ally. So being an ally means recognizing that you have the privilege of moving through the world more safely than other people. I think that the Weasleys are great examples of allies. As I mentioned before, the Weasleys' pure blood status gives them a lot of privilege under both Voldemort and Fudge, and they use that privilege to make the world safer for muggles, muggle-borns, half-blood witches and wizards, etc. Arthur Weasley was an ally in his profession, working at the ministry to keep muggles safe. He and Molly Weasley raised their children to respect and value difference, not just to tolerate it, but to respect it and value it and appreciate that difference is what makes communities strong think that these are really meaningful ways of being an ally, and when that work was no longer enough, the Weasleys, un, uh, following the lead of Arthur and Molly, actually became allies in a more literal battle sense by joining the resistance to fight against fascism, even when it put their family in danger. Uh, so, like all the Weasley children, except Percy, but he does come around... Ron is well-informed about anti-muggle racism uh, and the ways that prejudice is used to justify hate speech against, against non-pureblood magical people. And so for all of Ron's failings, and bless him, he does have so many of them, uh, Ron is a really good ally in that he trusts knowledge and expertise of other people. So he doesn't insist on being the leader when he doesn't know enough to lead. He doesn't center his experience over the experience of the people who are experiencing violence. And he's willing to sacrifice his safety so that those who need to can go on. I love Ron. Another important ally to bring up is Hermione, who, as we all know, is the real hero of the Harry Potter series. So where Ron is a good ally to those who are oppressed by the big and obvious systems of, of oppression... 
Uh, Hermione is actually really good at recognizing fascist threads that the wizarding world takes for granted as being acceptable. And the best example of this, I think, is the fact that she keeps Remus Lupin's werewolf status a secret. Um, so I love this meme. If you haven't seen this meme, it's so funny. For those of you, if you can't see it in the back, Lupin is saying, how did you know? And she says, your name, it's Werewolf McWerewolf. It's so funny. <laughs> um, so even though the wizarding world takes it as a given that werewolves are bad and dangerous, Hermione recognizes that this is a prejudice based on fear rather than fact and information. And she recognizes that to out Lupin as a werewolf would actually put him in jeopardy for no reason. Um, so good job, Hermione. Okay, let's talk about fighting back. The Harry Potter series teaches us that there are a lot of ways to be an ally, and the way that you raise your children, the way you educate yourself, the way that you uh, protect information that could put someone in danger, the way that you intervene when your friends or your family or your peers say something that's hurtful or hateful, these are all ways of being an ally. The series also teaches us that there will come times when the work of being an ally isn't enough, so sometimes you actually do have to fight back. So our obvious example here uh, is Dumbledore's army. Uh, via Harry, our uh, official hero, um, who taught his friends and his peers how to defend themselves against Death Eaters when they could no longer rely on their education to do that work for them. So the lesson that I want to draw your attention to here isn't just one about learning how to fight literally. What Harry does with Dumbledore's army is he, uh, he shares and teaches an important set of skills. We all have skills that are invaluable to resistance. Things like cooking, knitting, building a fire, making signs and posters. These are all skills that are valuable to teach and share. And these are all ways that you can help your community to fight back. So I like to say sharing is caring. I heard from a wonderful family the other day. Oh, no, sorry, it wasn't a family. I heard from a wonderful server the other night. Teamwork is dream work. <laughs> Great. Freeing critical journalism is also an extremely important way of fighting back. The wizarding world doesn't have social media yet. We'll see. Uh, and so when the Daily Prophet ceases to be a reliable source of information, it becomes the responsibility of other media sources to speak out. And so here we have this great fan art of the Quibbler. And you'll also remember the guerrilla radio program Potter Watch uh, from the books and the movies. So in our world, we have access to social justice, or sorry, social justice. I mean, we do. That's the whole point of this talk. In our world, we have access to social media. I've actually lost my pace on, my pace on page. Oh, my God. You know, I haven't slept in days. <laughs> I lost my place on the page, and I'm just trying to stall until I get there. There it is. <laughs> In our world, we have access to social media like YouTube and Twitter. So when you see injustices happening uh, and your local and official and professional media and news sources aren't taking them seriously, you can speak out. You can channel your inner Colin Creevy and just take pictures of everything, document everything you see happening. Uh, 
To keep yourself safe, you can, you can take a lesson from Fred and George and Lee Jordan and all of the other members of Potter Watch and use a code name. There are always means of raising awareness and resisting, and we all have something to contribute in order to create a just society. So I'm actually really interested in spending the rest of this time hearing about uh, what lessons of social justice you take from the Harry Potter series. Um, and so I would like to open up the floor to comments or questions. And uh, so just a reminder, we are recording this for our podcast. And so if you don't want to have your question recorded, actually, one second. Do we have a, a mic that we can pass around for questions? No? Oh, sorry, this, I'm, I'm at, can we use one of these mics? It was a badly phrased question. Yeah, so if you have a question, um, maybe my uh, lovely um, uh, child will hand you a microphone very cutely. He's going to drool all over it. We won't actually let him touch it. Um, so, okay. So, okay. Um, so if you don't want to have your voice recorded... Uh, but you do want to ask your question now and participate, that's awesome. So what I'd like you to do, if you don't want to be on there, just say no broadcast when you get the microphone, and when I edit this later, I'll just uh, edit out your question. Uh, but if you do want to be on the podcast, please say your first name um, so that uh, your question or comment gets attributed to you. So are there any questions or comments? Yes, at the back. No, no, they're just shy. Locked in my phone, and I got and I apparently my thumb is sweating. I can't get it unlocked. Okay, yeah, I'm just gonna enter my password now. This is a good time for those of you who like have questions but are shy to really work up the courage to ask. I also want to point out that since nobody else put their hand up, I have multiple questions, but I only want to give them one. No, at a time. You, get, you only get one. Yeah, that's what I was afraid, that's what I thought. <laughs> so uh, at the very beginning of the, of the panel, you mentioned that there's a rise of hate crimes. Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear your opinion on the, uh, how as the rise of hate crimes has come, there's also been an equal rise of hate crime hoaxes. Oh. Yeah, so I'd like you to elaborate more on that if you could. I've never, I haven't heard of any. That's all, that's, that's the best I can do, I'm sorry. Hi, my name is Orion. Um, I wanted to ask, I, first off, your general thesis I am in complete agreement with, and this is by no means meant as a poking a hole in anything. Okay. I wonder if anything um, of what you're saying changes if we think of the um, magic versus mudblood thing as a metaphor for class, at least as much as race, or mm -hmm. both at once, or something like that. Or if it's one of those analogies that doesn't quite fit perfectly, like um, mm -hmm. mutants aren't quite anything in particular. Um, right, does yeah. that change anything for you? I'm guessing the answer is probably not in general, but in the specific, perhaps. Yeah, so not in general. I think one of the really is interesting things about Okay, the, I want to make sure that I word this properly. I think one of the really interesting things about hatred is that hatred tends to understand intersectionality so much better than like love and progressivism. And so hatred will do this thing where it will uh, assume that everybody who is not the right color is also not the right class and is also not the right education and is also not the right uh, nationality, etc. So, so it, it does this really weird thing where it's like, yeah, you're all those things just because you're this one thing. Whereas uh, when we try to think in terms of justice or when we try to think in terms of um, 
uh, acceptance and um, freedom for everybody, et cetera. Uh, what we tend to do is sort of lean towards this, well, if everyone's equal, then everyone's equal and there's nothing that makes you different, which is such a nice sentiment, but doesn't actually, but what that does is it sort of forgets that uh, difference already exists in the way that we live in the world. Um, and so it, it almost, so it, it totally does the opposite of what people intended to do. So it's like, anybody can, su can succeed in this society. Race isn't real. Race is a social construct, which is so great, except that race is a social construct that people think is real, and so it actually impacts the very real world, or the very real way that people who are racialized live in the world, as opposed to the way that, say, I live in the world. Does that answer your question? Okay, great. Thank you. Hi, my name's Zach. Um, the first time I read the books, uh, something that I kind of interpreted was, because um, you only have about a dozen or so named characters that help Voldemort, I didn't really think of Voldemort's uprising as being like large in mm. terms of scope. Mm -hmm. But then you watch the movies, and it looks like he's got like hundreds and hundreds of supporters. And I always sort of took that as like, well, that's not realistic, because like, mm -hmm. how do you go back to a society after that? finding out that, like, hundreds of your co-society people are, like, Nazis, essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but now, with the rise of Trump, that's a very real thing. So how do you um, think, how do you go back to a, like, assuming Trump falls and progressive agenda achieved, how do you go back knowing that, like, so many people around you had these ideas, had these beliefs? That's a really interesting question. Um... I don't know that I have a great answer to that um, because I think so. Uh, so this is an academic panel, and I'm uh, I'm an academic. Feel weird using that, but it's a, I guess a thing that is true about me. Um, and so I will often joke, sort of semi seriously, that uh, I chose a career that allows me to just pinpoint all the problems, but not actually need to provide anybody with solutions. So whenever people ask me questions like, well, what can you do? I'll be like, I don't know. Ask somebody whose job it is to find out what you can do. My job is just to tell you what's wrong. Um, so that's a sort of preamble to why I am reluctant to answer this question. But uh, there, So the thing is that societies have come back. Um, and society as a thing has existed for a really, really long time. Um, I don't know that I can think of a good example of a society that's done a really good job of coming back off the top of my head. But if we look at the Harry Potter series and we think about The Cursed Child, and I'm so sorry if you haven't read it because you're waiting to see the play, I'm not really going to spoil it for you. But the thing that we realize when we read or see The Cursed Child is that they actually don't super come back from it. Um, they... Thank you. Um, they come back from the immediate and aggressive violence, but they don't have any kind of radical change in their society that would prevent another similar uprising from happening. Um, and so that was something that when I read it, I was actually really disappointed uh, to see. So, uh, yeah, so my answer is, I don't know, but there's got to be a way. We have to be able to, we have to be able to make the world a better place. Otherwise, what are we all doing here? Why did we? Why did I decide to make this panel, and why did you all decide to come here? <laughs> there's, there's got to be a way. Hi, my name's Hi. Tegan. So, obviously, in the series, we see that Voldemort has already kind of had this 
pre-rising. He was mm -hmm. already a threat. And we see first it with, as you have detailed, first with Fudge, and then again with Voldemort as mm -hmm. he rises for a second time. What makes, in your opinion, the wizarding world so vulnerable to this type of social injustice? That's a great question. Um, in, in my opinion, I would say that the wizarding world, probably very similar to our world, is really um, precious about certain kinds of power being protected above all else. And so what we see in the wizarding world is that even after Voldemort's first um, uh, defeat, we get, this, we get this, um, this new society or this rebuilt society that still believes very deeply in the difference between uh, muggle-borns and uh, pureblood, right? So there's still this sense of blood purity as a thing which they just sort of take for granted even though it's no longer... Um, I think I've gotten confused or gotten off my track. But even though blood purity under fudge, for example, isn't the most important thing, it's still very obviously on the minds of everybody. And so I don't think that that's new under the first Voldemort thing. Um, so, okay, sorry. So what makes the wizarding world vulnerable to this kind of thing? Um, and my argument was that it has something to do with these uh, things that we sort of hold dear. Oh, okay, it's difference. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an insistence that difference is bad and not something to be celebrated. And I think that when we live in a world where difference is um, appreciated and treasured and uh, encouraged, then I think we tend to live in a place where it's okay to be different as opposed to when you're different, you are somehow not normal or deviating from what is normal. I feel like that's a little bit rambly. I'm not sure if that really answered your question. Where did you go? Did it answer your question? Hi. How was it? Yeah, you know, thumbs up. Okay, I got a thumbs up. I'll take it. Hmm? Okay, probably last question. Hi, my name's Elisa. Um, I have a question and really I'm asking for your opinion. Okay about the Ilvermorny stories that have come out and the North American yeah. issues. Is yeah. that a big can of worms? Because I was super disappointed by a lot of it. Yeah. And I just sort of wondered what your opinion on that was. Um, okay, so in brief, what I would say uh, is that... Um, okay, so I haven't followed them very closely I'm not sure if there have been any changes since uh, Pottermore released those history tracks. Um, so, I'm only, so if there has been something different, I apologize that I can't speak to it. Um, but those tracks themselves, the thing that's super disappointing about them is that they are culturally appropriative by a person who herself claims to have created a series that is about um, resisting uh, that kind of violence. And that is so disappointing. And then when people commented and said, hey, J.K. Rowling, you just did this really violent thing to me and my people and my culture. You can't do that. She was like, ah, oh, all this hatred in my wizarding world, blah, blah, blah. But like your wizarding world is supposed to take place in our world. And so when you enact that kind of violence and pretend that our world isn't real, anyway, I got to wrap it up. So I would say that I'm also really disappointed in that you are, you are absolutely right to be disappointed and it's hard when our heroes disappoint us. Thank you all so much for being here. I appreciate it so much. Go make the world a better place. <laughs> Great job, Marcel. I have definitely, in the chronology of this episode, 
heard your talk and I loved it. <laughs> ah, thank you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You're very welcome. Somebody who went to the talk actually tweeted mm -hmm. at me after the talk, or I'm not even sure if they tweeted at me or if they just tagged me in the tweet, but um, they said that they were really impressed with the way that I, that I shut down the uh, fake hate crimes question. Oh, and I was a good. Oh. I was so I was so grateful that somebody in the audience felt that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody saw you. <laughs> I felt so seen. Oh, the rise of fake hate crimes. Okay, yep, I'm I'm pumped. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a real, it's a plague. It's the tenth plague. We're all fucked. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything worse. I would take uh blood in the rivers is that one of them it's been a while i think it rains i think it rains no well does it rain blood and it rains frogs like come on god be a little bit more oh. creative like two different kinds of <laughs> shitty rain come on speaking of the wrath of the old testament god very good it's time for the tri witches tournament do that again but with more chutzpah <laughs> It is time for the Tri Witches Tournament! Fantastic. Oh, okay. So, uh, last episode, we asked you to uh, take a small political action of some variety. And um, you all super duper stepped up. There were a lot of really wonderful, beautiful actions of a, a huge range of um, sort of sizes. That's not actions don't have sizes, but just like a huge range of kinds of actions that people took. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm just painting my nails over here. Um, yeah, great job, everybody. I don't... I don't know where so I we've, am. So we've chosen, as usual, we've chosen just a couple that we're going to highlight and shout out. Um, this, we're always going to, like, retweet you and um, celebrate you on Twitter, but uh, we're always just going to choose a couple for the actual episode. Um so first off, we want to shout out Lisa or um, LLHDMD, uh, who said, my political action, I have been more aggressively educating my daughters about patriarchy and white privilege. Um, I like this one for a lot of reasons. I think that um, educating our daughters and all of the the young women in our lives is a super important form of political action. Actually, all of the young people in our lives, you know, our yeah. daughters, our sons, our children of all a rainbow of beautiful genders. Um, I also really love the use of the word aggressively <laughs> as the adjective for the way in which she is educating her daughters. So yes, yes. A plus to that one. It really, it reminds me of, um, I had, uh, I had this friend in undergrad uh, whose name was Lauren and um, her mom, she used to always tell us stories about the kind of feminist that her mom was and 
I can't, I wish I could remember the specifics of this one story, but she told us about this one time when she and her mother had to leave an event and her mother was like, come on, Lauren, we're leaving. And she was like, why are we leaving? And she says, because we're feminists. <laughs> and marched her daughter right out of there. And, and I have no idea what the circumstance was, but like, that was a real moment of like, mm, parenting goals. Yes. Yeah. Because we're feminists and feminists leave things in outrage. Yes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we do. And now Lauren is a midwife. So there you go. Oh, how beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I'm having real flashbacks to when we used to do the Twitter list and I would <laughs> try to pronounce um, names and handles that I didn't know how to pronounce. And so this is going to be another one of those times. And so just to like echo back to a thing that we used to say, you are always welcome to get in touch with us and correct us on our terrible mispronunciations of your name. So I'm just going to say in advance, I don't think I'm going to say this right. Please let me know how to say it properly. If having your name said properly is a thing that is important to you, which is good and right. Um, okay, so Alzus Gerardius tweeted, I just shared and supported a picnic event against a very homophobic and transphobic prof at my hometown university on all my social media. So I thought that that was an awesome thing to shout out because um, sharing things on social platforms can be a really, really hard thing to do when I'm thinking specifically of Facebook um, because mm -hmm. so many of us, uh, are just friends in the Facebook way with so many people mm -hmm. like and have been for a long time that we often don't share the same political perspectives on a lot of things. And it can be a very vulnerable thing to do to mm -hmm. to share that kind of that kind of thing. Um, but it is also it is also a thing that is so brave and is a super manageable thing to do, um, mm -hmm. to share and support an event uh, that is against transphobia and against homophobia. That's super, super important. Um, and I love yeah. the fact that it's a picnic. More anti-transphobic, more anti-homophobic picnics for all. Oh my God, I just, I, I, well, I, want, I want a future in which every weekend is a panoply of, of queer picnics. Yeah. It's just so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, let's just take let's take back picnics. Let's say picnics are all queer now. Yeah, yeah, all all picnics are queer. They're, you they're ours. you can't have them anymore now. If you have an event that's a picnic and it's yeah. not queer, mm, that's too bad. We're gonna come. We're gonna take it away. Yeah, just like rainbows and unicorns, oh. they're ours now. Yep, yep, they're ours. Sorry, we're taking literally everything that's good <laughs> and making it better and making it yes, yeah. No, all the good things belong to us, and they're getting better every yep. day. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's really, I was having a, a conversation with a friend recently about like the weird business of trying to like intervene in your high school friends, mom's racist Facebook oh, status update God. and like the ways in which these platforms sort of put you into contact with people and, and how, um, you know, particularly, I think that a lot of other white middle class people like me have uh, been socialized to be like, well, that's awkward. I will ignore mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. And the sort of the, the call, the 
the the courage that it takes to to use those platforms to have more meaningful interventions or to or to share things that you feel like you're not sure how they'll be responded to but you think they're really important to say so Mm -hmm. um excellent work yep yep 10 out of 10 both of you good job yep um, so our new challenge uh, for this episode is um, we're, we're, we're sending you something that is super important as well, but maybe a little less hard than some of our previous challenges. Mm-hmm. And that is um, it's uh, it's shine theory week. Um, <laughs> uh, we want you to uh, shine on a friend of yours who's who has been doing something really awesome or who you just think is really really awesome um so use this opportunity to shout out somebody you know and care about who is um you know involved in a project or just tell them that you see them Mm -hmm. choose somebody who you maybe you haven't told recently how amazing you think they are and uh and tell them that you see them and you see the really amazing person they are and the really amazing work that they're doing. Yeah. The, uh, the day before we recorded this episode, uh, I was on the, which please Twitter and, um, Hannah tweeted about how, when I'm on the, which please Twitter, it is one of her favorite things. And it, it just, it just really, it just made me feel so shined on. I just, it was just, just such a nice thing and I was like but what did I do and Hannah was like it wasn't a specific thing and I was like but what did I do what was it you're just great you're just great I'm so excited whenever you're running the Twitter feed (laughs) because like you're so uh you're so charming and funny and thoughtful on it and I'm always really excited to see what you're gonna say uh somebody tweeted recently one sec I'm just looking it up right now um, oh yeah, it was uh, Darcy Isla um, was tweeting about like the desire to use Twitter to sort of get in touch with um, like celebrities or people you're a fan of, and how it's a really good sort of feminist praxis to instead lift up your friends and your peers. Mm-hmm. And she wrote, um, this puts me in mind of one of my fave things about which please they have so much love for each other and their friends. Friends are their celebrities. Um, and I was like, oh my God, that's the most beautiful thing. Cause it's so true. It's definitely true. So yeah, this week, um, make your friends, your celebrities and, uh, and use this opportunity. I'm like, what is every single episode from this season going to involve us crying? <laughs> what is going? Why? I, what? I don't know. Anyway. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, that's the, use theme. this opportunity to, uh, to make one of your friends a celebrity. Yeah. Oh. Fuck, I'm wearing mascara. What an idiot. <laughs> you know what, Hannah? You're what? very beautiful, and you always look oh. great. And yeah. I am always super impressed with how fantastic you are at applying makeup in these, like, awe-inspiring, glamorous ways. Stop it. You just, you are just such a beautiful woman, whether you have mascara on or not. Stop it. But I feel like I can really learn from you. <laughs> Stop it. It's time for which please tell me. The, like beautification process. <laughs> and you have all these tools. Like mascara primer. I do. I do. I can't wait to read these tweets. I'm really excited. It's going to be great. Okay. Yeah. Let's move on to uh, which please tell me. Take it away, Todd. 
Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. Oh, oh. Which please, which please make it make sense to me. Because a muggle in me just wants to know. It's such a good song. Yeah, it's great. I can't wait for the remix. (laughs) Okay, so our question this week comes from H. Cassidy. Um, And they ask, knowing the Patronus spell... What would you have the Matronus spell do? I don't know. What are you thinking, mm-hmm. Hannah? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the way that my mind went was towards thinking about um, Hermione's experience of challenge with the Patronus spell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the ways that I'm trying. Do you remember... Um, I'm trying to remember exactly what Cheryl's theory was about why Hermione struggles with the Patronus spell and that it has to do with sort of anxiety. I think, I think it was that she has depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. So here, here is a thought. The Patronus spell is all about um, uh, you and your personal strength, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's really individualistic. Um, it's about sort of confidence and believing in yourself um, which like makes it not a surprise that Harry's really good at it, <laughs> <laughs> and not as much of a surprise that that Hermione struggles with it, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are gendered, obviously, dimensions to the way in which we experience like confidence and believing in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if maybe the Matronus spell would be like something that you cast on a loved one. To keep them safe Hmm. Um, so that it doesn't always have to be like, you know, I can only defend myself from within me. Like, what if the power of the Matronus spell um, came from, like, your care for uh, others rather than your belief in yourself? So... So the Matronus spell, the Matronus could be this, the name for the spell that Lily cast to save Harry's life in the same, and it's like the same. Okay. So one thing that the movie leaves out that still gets me, and I honestly can't remember if we talked about this um, when we did the Mm -hmm. movie episode or not, but um, when I'm pretty sure this is in the book, somebody, people will correct me if I'm wrong, but when Mm -hmm. Harry... (laughs) goes to Voldemort in the in the woods when he willingly allows Voldemort to kill him to protect mm-hmm. everybody from Voldemort's wrath um, mm-hmm. what he does is that's the same spell that that mm-hmm. Lily cast yeah um, and so then like they all all of his his loved ones become untouchable um, they mm-hmm. can't be harmed and so um that anyway yeah the movie leaves that out and it like yeah. doesn't make any sense why they win the battle but like it's fine it's fine yeah. it makes sense yeah. i get it neville's a hero um so so yeah so maybe then that's the name of that spell that like mm-hmm. that like i have the power within me to take care of others yeah and like so beautiful that he the thing that gives him 
the power to cast the Matronus, which is like a way harder spell than the Patronus, is the fact that the um, uh, the resurrection stone lets him see his mother. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can think about that moment as like her passing on to him the knowledge of that really hard magic that is like community care. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's the thing that lets him ultimately save the day. It's not his like his particular aptitude for expecto patronum it's that he ultimately <laughs> masters this like much much harder spell mm-hmm. yeah oh my god that moment <laughs> sorry stop <laughs> no <I> just... <laughs> oh wow Huh. Yeah. 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 Fun fact about me, I have no feelings about mothers. Mm-mm. Anyway. No. Um yeah. Yeah, that was a good question. question. Um don't forget folks that uh if you want us to answer a question on Twitter, you need to use the witch please tell me hashtag um because we don't like set them aside as we see them. We u- we look them up using the hashtag right before we record the episodes. Mm-hmm. So we need that hashtag so we can find them. Yeah, and um, we have a yeah. we have a tendency when we're on the Twitter uh, and people ask us questions and don't use that hashtag. We're like, well, what does the community think? And so we just retweet it out. So um, mm-hmm. so yeah. So if it's specifically a question for us, we'll use the hashtag. But otherwise, if you just want like to hear what your peers think and want us to RT it, we'll we generally yeah. do that with. Um, with questions yeah yeah which please which please make it make sense to me because a muggle in me just wants to know thanks dear listeners for joining us for season two episode three of which please the rest of our episodes are as always available at ohwitchplease.ca you can also subscribe and rate us on itunes or whatever platform you prefer uh, and don't forget to check out our merch at society6.com slash ohwitchplease or through the ongoing link on our website. Special thanks, as always, to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile of erstwhile, our erstwhilest of erstwhile tech support, <laughs> and the robot of our hearts. Hi, how are you doing? We'll be back in two weeks with Hannah and Rochelle's visit to the Warner Brothers Studios. But until then, later, witches! Beautifully done. Hooray! Hello and welcome to Witch Please! It's awful. Which, please? It's a little bit more, it's a bit more southern than I intended it to be. Hello and welcome to Witch, please. <laughs> God, the new, the new, like, theme of our, of our intros is how do we say our podcast name? Hello and welcome to Witch, please, a fortnightly pod... Ish. Fuck. <laughs> A fortnightly, oh my god, hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. Yeah, that's how you want to start, for sure.
18 times the charm. <clears throat> well, now you're just ready to laugh. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast. Oh my god, murder me! <laughs> Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. I am Marcel Cosman. This is the NPR version of our of our podcast. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly-ish podcast about the Harry Potter world. Hello, vocal fry, please. Hello and welcome. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.